What is up, everybody? Welcome back to Western Civ from the Abyss, the show just trying to keep Western Civ alive. As always, we want to thank our parent podcast here, Tales from the Abyss, for giving us the opportunity to kind of have this chance to nerd out a little bit on some history. So thank y'all. And uh, stay tuned, you know, throughout the week to see all the content that's being put out throughout the week by our podcast. So, but anyway, I want to get into a little bit today. I know uh, in my last episode, I had mentioned that I might get into some Greek city-states, but this is going to be one of those times where we toss in a little curveball because I will not be going over some of the other Greek city-states today. In fact, we're going to stay right in that medieval time with those uh, medieval Romans just because I'm having so much fun. That I thought what I would do is instead of giving like, you know, like what like we kind of had been doing with more of like straight history lesson about them in general, is kind of focus on something specific. And that would be one of their greatest inventions. And that was Greek fire. And that's something you might have heard of before as kind of like a side note. A lot of the times in medieval history, you know, it's, it, it's something you've heard of, but that all you ever really hear is a mentioning of Greek fire and that it was, you know, kind of like the name suggested, involves fire. But you never really get into too much detail on it. And, and, and most people might not even heard of it at all. So what was it? Well... It was one of the most feared weapon systems in all the Middle Ages. And essentially what it was, and we're going to get into much more detail here, but what's really cool about it is that it's basically medieval napalm. Um, and I mean, it really, in every way it was, it burned on, on, it burned on top of water. Uh, water did not extinguish it when you threw it on top of, uh, when, when you tried to extinguish it with water, it didn't do anything. It could burn on top of it. Uh, extremely, extremely effective against uh, ships in, in, in those times, in the Middle Ages. It would be all wooden ships, of course. You could deploy this uh, chemical compound because what it was was an extremely sticky liquid, a lot like modern-day napalm. And uh, so, you, so you could deploy it many different ways. And the Romans came up with some, with, with some very unique ways of deploying it, pretty cool ways, like we said we're going to get into here shortly. But uh, it wasn't just exclusive to the water. You know, you could also use it on land. Um, you know, they, they could deploy it in type of grenades. Um, you could, of course, shoot them from catapults, which is not something new uh, to warfare. Uh, you know, people have been lighting different, you know, various, uh, you know, uh, ignitable compounds for a long time and, and then hurling them into, the, you know, the ranks of soldiers. You know, as far, you know, uh, as far back as... I mean, oh, as far back as a really long time, I mean, even in ancient Greece, they would light, uh, you know, big, either big logs um, covered in different pitch or something, you know, some kind of flammable materials or these balls maybe um, of, 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 of sticks and, um, that, and then again, they would wrap in this flammable materials. And uh, the object was to either to roll these things or to create a fire barrier or roll this fire into a rank to just disrupt the uh, front lines of the incoming soldiers because, you know, particularly in ancient warfare, uh, the battle depended on the cohesion of your lines and your, like, particularly a phalanx system, which was what the ancient Greeks would have, the fighting style they would have used, uh, really only works if everyone stays in unison, so... You know, you know, so it's been a long time that people have been using the fire to, time, to try and disrupt the organization of the incoming troops. So, but what was unique about uh, Greek fire 
was that it burned so intensely hot and, and, and like again and it couldn't be distinguished or extinguished it could burn on top of water i mean it was literally had um it, it was called uh you know fire water uh, a lot of different times um, um you know the sea of fires what it would create is what a lot of uh Arabs who had seen it when when he got back, they described it as the only thing they could see say is that the Romans were able to set the sea on fire. Um, and in effect, yeah, we actually in Game of Thrones you get an excellent, uh, an, an excellent view, like, like kind of uh, how do I say it, like an actual portrayal of how it would have gone down. And I have no idea what the episode is, like like the episode number or season or anything like that, but. I know it's when um, someone's trying to uh, attack, you know, that capital city, the the Red Keep or whatever, uh, in front of you game, uh, big Game of Thrones fans out there. I'm sorry if I'm getting any of this wrong. Um, I love the show. just don't remember the details. But uh, anyway, they're coming in to attack it. Um, uh, the, the, the Tyrion guy is there, and they discover... Uh, again, I think they they might have called it even wildfire. They might, they might call it wildfire, I think, or dragon fire or something like that. They call it something, but anyway, it's a liquid substance that's like hidden in the basement or whatever from a long time ago, and apparently, you know, burns as hot as dragon's breath or whatever. It might actually be called wildfire. If it is, that's awesome because that is then a day. I mean, I mean, it's already an unmistakable reference to Greek fire. But like, if 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 it, if, if they actually do call it wildfire, then that is a name that actually Greek fire was was nicknamed as well the crusaders uh, the western crusaders when they would come later on during the high middle ages uh would 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 had a couple nicknames for it and one of them was actually wildfire uh it was a common common nickname for uh greek fire at the time but uh but anyway back to the description what it is it's really cool it's deployed in the same way you see in that episode where um they know that an incoming fleet's coming so they find this uh, secret, you know, dragon's li uh, breath liquid or whatever, and they dump it all in the harbor. It, it's that green thing that, that oh, yeah, yeah, they, they drilled the holes in the ships. That's what it was. They had these um, fire ships that I guess was filled with this liquid, and they drilled holes in the side, um, pointed the ships at the incoming, you know, fleet, and there they went. And as it floated, as they all floated, they were pouring this liquid out, coating, you know, the whole you know, uh, all the harbor with this stuff. And so the moment, uh, the enemy fleet comes into this, you know, comes into that contaminated water, you know, they strike the match and then boom, they all go up in flames and that big ass green flame thing you see. Um, really cool. You know, they make it seem like it, like it's like hell on earth for the, for the ships in the water. You know, it's, it's a pretty, yeah, it's a pretty wild scene, and a lot of people, you know, and it, it is like like Game of Thrones, kind of like a fantasy, you know, type of show, and so you're kind of looking at it like, oh man, that's wild. Like, what would that be like? And it's like that happened in real life. That is actually a very accurate depiction of what what really happened to real people. And I mean, uh, it was deployed. And, and let's get back to some of the history here. Well, what 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 is it? What is Greek fire overall? So that that was just kind of a quick like jump in. So let's get into kind of the. Uh, the, the bare bones of it, and then let's get into kind of the details. So Greek fire, is an, as you probably have deduced, is an incendiary weapon that was used by the Romans during the Middle Ages. And um, like, like we said before, what actually what's really interesting about it is that its composition is a state secret that we still don't know what it was. It was kept so secret by the, uh, by the Roman government 
even and it was it was it was said to have been developed in 673. So pretty early on, remember the fall of the uh, Western Roman uh, half of the empire was only in the you know the mid 400s. So we're not talking, but really only 200 years since half the empires disappeared, which is supposed to be the Dark Ages. There in the middle, you know, right there in the early Middle Ages. And here they go. They create, they create napalm. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And and they kept it a secret to this day. Like we don't know what it is. And they invent. It, it was it was uh, credited to this guy named uh, Callinicus uh, of um, Helapolis. Is his name? Callinicus uh, being more of the Latinized name of his name. Um, the Greek would be like with a K. Callinicus. Kalinikos, I think it would be in the Greek. Greek is the yeah Kalinikos would be what it would it be in Greek. Kalinikos in the Latin. I'm gonna continue to stick with the Latin because it's just easier to say. So Kalinikos of Helopolis is credited with inventing Greek fire. Um, but there's various uh, theories on that. Um, I I personally believe that he didn't invent greek fire like he was like look what i have discovered it is greek fire look what i have made is greek fire i think that the description that is given by some other historians is that remember the byzantine empire until well like what 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 compensated that that area for the longest time was held by like like the whole area the, the roman empire you know can uh, held um, even, you know, way before the West and then well, you know, afterwards until the Arabs start rising up into the 600s and they start, uh, you know, taking a lot of this, uh, Eastern land. And, and it is because the, the Eastern Romans had, uh, had that time of where they're, uh, they had been afflicted by the plague of Justinian. So they had a population decrease. You see that when, when you ever have a population decrease like that, uh, your your banks i mean not your banks your uh your economy plummets because back then i mean you only had like, like like if you were a government you couldn't just print dollar bills and say hey you know this note's legal tender because we say it is uh you had to actually collect the gold and how much money you had is how much gold you had so taxes were vitally important and when you have all of a sudden in a matter of a few years in some cases, 50% of your major cities reporting, you know, 50% of the population died. That, that, that's just crushing. Um, you can't pay soldiers. Soldiers are dying in mass numbers. So like, so bottom line is they were extremely weakened and Arab tribes were able to then start conquering large swaths of land, including Egypt and along with most of the Middle East. Um, hence why later on Alexius I will ask the Western, uh, Pope to uh, Urban II to call for the First Crusade to assist them in reconquering some of their land. But that, that's a long time from now. We're back in the 673s with old Clinicus. So, so what's happened is the Arabs have taken back a lot of lands. And actually, this is why Clinicus excuse me, is in Constantinople. is because he was originally a Jewish refugee from Syria who fled once the Arabs had conquered Syria from the Romans. So... Uh, so here we are, and old Callinicus is credited with the overall creation of it, but I personally don't think, and, and, there, and, there's, and there's a huge uh, group of 
historians as well who don't think that he's one who probably single-handedly invented. There was probably a prior uh, uh, chemical compound that came out of Alexandria because that was the point I was getting to um, just a minute ago was that Egypt was controlled by the Romans for a very long time. Alexandria was notorious or uh, notable for having their uh, famous uh, school and library there, the Library of Alexandria. Uh, you know, that that is one of the greatest centers of knowledge that has ever existed. Uh, it, it, it had a series of destructions. You know, it wasn't, you know, it uh, when Julius Caesar first had his little run-in with Cleopatra and everything that went down with all that. Um, you know, then you have Octavian and Mark Antony and the whole Battle of Actium and then, you know, everything that goes down with that. Well, you know, during that time, uh, the fire started. And there was some major damage done as early as, like I said, during the time of Julius Caesar, uh, during the Roman Republic. But then later on, uh, both the Christians and the Arabs would both, um, you know, uh, further destroy the, the library. But at one point, and for the longest time, it was one of the greatest center of knowledges of all time. Uh, it was said to have housed a copy of everything that was ever written. But more importantly, it housed for centuries uh, all the writings of the famous Greek philosophers, Roman philosophers, mathematicians, um, uh, astronomers, you know, geog uh, geography. I mean, e every subject you can think of, they had there, and it was it was a center. For, if if you were if you were if you were in the intel if you were someone who was intelligent and you wanted to join, what was, you know, just a free group of thinkers where you could go into this ancient time, have all this knowledge available to you from all the ancients from all the ancient Greeks, from everything from Rome, from everything that's being said. You have all this, all, all these descriptions, all these maps, all these formulas, everything that came before you. And what was awesome is they spent a lot of money on this library in school where you even had individual rooms where you could go into, which would today we would call little study rooms if you were at a university um, library. And no kidding, I mean, you could duck into one of these little side rooms, and a lot of times in the center of the room would be this um, big stone uh, table filled with sand, uh, that being so you could write things in there or draw things or, you know, and so on and so forth. And you could conduct your experiments and all kinds of things like that. But uh, point being, and it kind of all ties into, like I said before, is, you know, the Romans or are, are in control of this uh, particular knowledge center for an extremely long period of time, even after, you know, the fall of the West, like I said, for roughly about 200 years before the Arabs start uprising and taking lands back. And the use of fire, particularly against ships that are wooden, is not something new in the 600s. That's something that's been deployed both on land and sea for a while. So what I think is that most likely there was already a substance in use or, 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 and this was probably something that had been commissioned to be heavily researched by the Alexandrians in the school of chemicals, because there was, there was an entire section of the, uh, of the school at Alexandria that looked into uh, chemicals. I mean, chemists, I guess is what we call them nowadays. And so it's no doubt in my opinion that, uh, Someone from Constantinople at some point ordered, you know, the research and development of some kind of, uh, you know, fire product. And what I think is clinic, this uh, clinicus, what he did was probably uh, kind of build on an already existing formula or either that or change the deployment system. Because that, 
was really another not just what Greek fire was, but how the Romans deployed it was also uh, extremely innovative and ahead of its time. And Greek fire is credited to really the main reason that the Romans were able to exist another thousand years after the fall of the West. I mean, considering that for the majority of the time, they were surrounded by enemies on both sides. Uh, I mean, obviously the Muslim Arabs uh, and the Turks, who they would always be at war with and eventually would be overtaken by the Turk. But even... Uh, I mean, after 1054, you would have the West is now your ideological enemy. I mean, the, the Roman Catholic West and the Eastern Orthodox East did not get along. They separated. Uh, even when Constantinople was at its darkest hour and asking for help, um, Constantine, in fact, the 11th, the last emperor, even offered to the Pope the return of, of the Eastern Church unto, to the Roman Catholic Church under the papacy. And um, but they still didn't really send any help. I mean, the Pope was excited and wanted that, of course, but but no one in the West cared. So you can show you that it just shows how far by the time of the fourteen fifty three, uh, how how uh, how distant they've become. People who were once all Roman um, now couldn't even care less if the very last of the Romans, uh, you know, were seeing their final hour. The Venetians, in the to their credit, did I guess send some kind of help, but you know probably more to protect I and mean, it was more to protect their investment than it was to help the romans so uh but you know be that as it may they still sent somebody so and and, I, and i'm not going to take away from the pisans nor the uh venetians who stayed in the city to help them uh to help the romans fight on their uh on their last day there but i'm just saying this goes to show you that the west really didn't care anymore so for the longest time uh the romans were surrounded and Greek fire is the main reason they, they survived for that long because no one had an answer to it. And that's just the simple facts. No one had an answer what to, the, to, to that. You couldn't put it out. Wood caught fire very easily. It was much more effective on sea than land because it was able to disperse quicker on water. You know, uh, the difference is, you know, you, on land you might hit a good group and, you know, catch a few people on fire. And that's awesome. You know, you want to do that. But in a boat that might be holding one to 200 people in each boat and you catch that boat on fire, you might get them all, you know, all hands on deck. Because so, the only other option is then to jump into the Bosporus. And I mean, your, your chances aren't great there because, I mean, <laughs> the, the Romans aren't going to let you just wash up on shore or you're going to be captured or most likely killed and you really can't swim back to Asia. Uh, in the middle of the Bosporus. So, it made it extremely effective. Now, they didn't just deploy it in the way that you see in Game of Thrones. That's just an awesome ex you know, representation of what it looked like. One of the descriptions we get from, uh, I think I had mentioned in a previous episode her name. Her name is Anna Comnemna. She was the daughter of Alexius I Comnemnus, the, um, the business, or the, uh, he was the, uh, oh, shoot, the, um, the emperor. God, I can't believe I couldn't think of the name. I kept thinking Kaiser. I'm like, why am I in German history right now? Um, so he was the emperor of the Romans during the time of the First Crusade, and he's the one who actually went to Pope Urban II and requested for knights to help him reclaim um, the land that had, he had been losing at the time. So, but anyway, but Anna Comnemna is, is his daughter, so she's a Roman princess, and she writes a history of the Roman military at the time. And during that, uh, and, and this, like I said, this is in her uh, recording called the Alexiad. 
and and in there she describes the 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 use of greek fire and she even goes into some of its chemical compounds now she'll briefly describe it and then i will um kind of go into what the modern scientists think it is but she says and this is a quote from the alexiad uh, it says, this fire is made by the following arts, from the pine and certain such evergreen trees, inflammable, inflammable resin is collected. This is rubbed with sulfur and put into tubes of reed and is blown by men using, using it with, vi with violent and continuous breath. Then in this manner, it meets the fire on the tip and catches light and falls like a fiery uh, whirlwind on the faces of the enemies. So basically what she's saying here is, uh, and this is what's really cool, is that it's deployed exactly like a modern-day flamethrower. Is that it was made uh, out of this, you know, pine tar. It looks like pine resin. Um, she mentioned sulfur. Uh, a lot of modern uh, uh, scientists who have tried to, to re remake it with what was available to the people at the time believe that it was, just like she said, some kind of pine, um, some kind of, uh, you know, sulfur, naphtha, and uh let's see let me check my notes here because i think i had something else that uh, they believed were going into it back to mulberry resin because you could use it a few different ways but uh yeah mainly what we're getting here is that pine resin and after quicklime that's what it is quicklime uh, it's very important there because that's also in dynamite um or excuse me in gunpowder um and yeah then you have the sulfur and you know phosph calcium phosphide so yeah so so there you go. You make that, and it makes it extremely sticky. And like we said, uh, that that's what it makes. So she describes it as that. Where that's the best guess of what we all think that, or what the scientists that today think that went involved in making it. Uh, but like I was saying, uh, what was what was also really cool was the deployment and what it was. Is you had these tubes, and they would be is a brass tube, and you'd have like this pumping system, kind of like. Uh, Oh gosh, I like I'm not very good at this uh, part of it, knowing all the structural stuff. But it's like a pump, you know what I mean? Like like you like like you're in the medieval times, so it's not like a modern day pump. It'd be like one of these things where you got your hands and you're and you're pumping it. It's building up the pressure, and it's slowly you know it pushes the the liquid up from wherever you're containing it. Most likely to have been below deck because you don't really want to have. Uh, giant tank of this extremely flammable and, and uh, impossible to put out liquid on on top of your deck because that can quickly backfire and um, you know not be very good. So it'd most likely be below decks. So you'd have what they had was a tube coming up, and then it would go over to the to the to the bow, and then uh, Anna Kamnemic goes on to say that her dad uh, during during this time where some Pisans were coming to uh, looks like attack the city because what had happened is the Pisans. And yeah, they are from the city of Pisa at the time was an Italian city state along with Venice who were major trading powers at the time. And Constantinople was the major trading post because there uh, they unlocked uh, the, 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 they connected the Mediterranean with the Black Sea. So extremely important trading post there. Uh, so they both had uh, both those Greek factions had large sections of the city that were kind of like their areas and the uh the, the roman government would every now and then have to rein them in or impose different um uh we would call them today is almost uh uh what do they call it when uh, sanctions almost putting sanctions on their um 
on their different areas on on their shipping or maybe they weren't allowed to trade anymore go through other ports and so in response you know pisa would you know threaten to send military action if they didn't release their or allow them to trade so but anyway but she goes on to say that these pisans were coming and her dad alexius the first told the uh, ships to to uh in the sea Let's see, here's the actual quote. As he knew that the Pisans were skilled in sea warfare and dreaded a battle with them, on the prow of each ship he had a head fixed of a lion or other land animal made in brass or iron or iron with the mouth open, then gilded over so that their mere aspect was terrifying. And the fire which was to be directed against the enemy through the tubes he made, he made to pass through the mouths of the beasts so that it seemed as if the lions... And the other similar monsters were vomiting the fire. So you can see how, you know, how intimidating that would be, particularly we're talking about, you know, in this instance with Alexius I, we're talking about the high Middle Ages, from, you know, the First Crusades. We're talking about the 1099 is when the First Crusade is. So we're, really, so we're talking about really early on seeing this type of technology. I mean, that is, we are in what is supposed to be the, the Dark Ages, uh, not with Alexius, but... I'm saying just with with Greek fire overall, because even before Alexius, they would have deployed it the same way. Um, couldn't find any firsthand sources saying that they made brass lion heads, you know, in the six seven hundreds. But uh, it was deployed in the same system where you had a tube, then you know you pumped it, and then that tube got smaller and smaller and smaller until it came out of a very narrow um, fixed hole, much like how we have hoses today. And in, and like we uh, heard from Anna Kamnemna there, it fired out onto a, where there was a, uh, a, most of the time a lit torch would have been sitting in front of it. And actually, this is exactly how um, those early flamethrowers were for the Germans. They they had the same deployment system pretty much where you just had your like fixed nozzle that sprayed this liquid, you know, highly pressurized through a small thing very far. And at the front of it was a lit um you know, fuse or something, something, something that made a constant fire. So when the liquid hit it and was spreading, you know, forward, it would, it would be catch on fire. And so it's basically the same thing. You'd have a lick torch in front of this, um, in, in front of the nozzle. So when you fired it, it would catch on fire and basically just spray fire all over the place. Um, so extremely intimidating. I mean, they really kind of deployed the same fear tactic that you would see later on from the Vikings, you know, using, um, you know, figureheads on the prow to be intimidating. Now, now the Vikings also would use it. You know, they also believed, apart from being intimidating, that they were also trying to scare the bad spirits away from the water so that, you know, they could pass in peace. So it was a multi-purpose there. So, but either way, it was centered around fear. So, but either way, uh, you know, pretty cool. So, and now there's a bunch of battles where it had played a major part. Like I said, it was credited to being the main reason that the Eastern Romans were even able to exist as long as they did. Uh, it saved Constantinople multiple times, particularly in the 700s, when a large fleet, uh, when a large air fleet was coming to do, uh, you know, wipe them out when uh, when they were at really one of their weakest. And this is why uh, they say that, you know, one of the other uh, theories that, uh, or one of the other, uh, you know, tales of how Greek fire came, because it came right at a time where it was needed. I mean, if 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 the Romans didn't have it. In those late 600s, early 700s, Constantinople falls. They did not have a navy that can match the Ottomans. They were vastly outnumbered. Uh, they could hold on their land walls because of the great Theodosian walls that 
I mean, the Arabs at the time were we couldn't. It was impenetrable throughout the Middle Ages until um, until the deployment by the Turks of um, mod, of, of gunpowder artillery. Uh, but unless you have artillery, it is basically impregnable. So they didn't have to really worry about their land side. But when you have a fleet the size of the Arab fleet that they would have in the 700s, the weakest part was the seawalls. But once those walls were then deployed with these uh, Greek-fired uh, flamethrower systems, uh, it became much safer. And then again, you know, they'd pour it in the harbor, deploy it a lot like you saw in Game of Thrones. They also would have large catapults, handheld grenades. Uh, it didn't take too much to light those uh, ships on fire. Um, particularly if you are struggling to put it out. So even something as big as a, uh, I mean, really, I mean, a grapefruit, if you could like that and chuck it on the deck or something, then, I mean, that can eventually spread and cause a whole lot of problems. Um, so you see it being used, like I said, particularly to see, uh, save Constantinople. It was used, like we had mentioned, against the Arabs, against the Turks. It was also used against the Russians, the Pisans, so the Italians, the Russians, the you know, all different types of Arabs and Turks. Looks like they all ran into it from the Romans. So, uh, pretty amazing. Really kind of an incredible invention that I think is not talked about anywhere near enough. Um, you know, it's, it's very cool. You, you, we think of, uh, when you think napalm, you think of Vietnam. You know, and, and that's for good reason. That's when it was used. Uh, you, you know, you get images of, uh, what's the, what's the word, like Full Metal Jacket and all those movies. But, I mean, we're talking about the 600. 673 is the first, uh, like I said, is the first known uh, deployment of it with old uh, Clinicus there. So, I mean, it, it's just kind of, I just think it's really cool. It's something that a lot of people don't know. Um, you know, a lot of times we think that, these things that are modern really, really kind of aren't. So there we go. The Romans created um, napalm all the way back in 673. Uh, and it was renowned all throughout the Middle Ages. It was one of the most feared weapons of. Uh, it was the most feared weapon, really, of the of the Middle Ages. It, it, today, it'd be uh, it'd be a weapon of mass destruction. Um, and, and, and they're the only ones who had it. Now, the other people would try, you know, others would have their own versions of it. Uh, you know, some uh, alchemist was always coming out saying that they've created the new Greek fire or, uh, you know, they've created something better than Greek fire, blah, blah, blah. But uh, for whatever they did, I personally think it was uh, developed in the chemist school of the Library of Alexandria uh, and then improved upon by Mr. Clinicus here. Uh, but you know, I don't know, maybe he did come up with it. If he did, the guy's a genius. Great for him. Either way, awesome invention, saved the Roman empire for a long time. Uh, just another one of those really cool things that the Romans invented during the times where it was supposed to be the dark ages. And here we are with a futuristic invention that after the, uh, fall of Constantinople, you don't hear about it again um i'm trying to think because the next time you hear the deployment of anything similar to that and again i mean let me know if i'm wrong i'm, I'm sure there's another time a fire was used and i'm not saying that like fire wasn't used in battle for the next you know 600 years but what i'm saying is um this particular use of it 
you know, fire that can burn on water. Um, firing it from a hose, like, like, like a giant glorified flamethrower. Uh, this type of innovation and deployment, you don't see again, I don't know if until modern time, until World War I, when the Germans invent the flamethrower, which is really just Greek fire and a handheld pump. Um, so... So, I don't know, uh, but you don't really hear much about it until then, um, and at that time, it was even, and when the Germans used it in World War One, it was considered a complete shock weapon, uh, installed fear, it was highly effective, um, I mean, as you can see, it continued use in World War Two, uh, particularly in the Pacific, you see its high use uh, in clearing the jungles, which is why, it was, again, it was used in Vietnam, it was used in Korea, um, so, and it dates all the way back to the Romans. Not a lot of people know that. So, uh, there's something cool. Take that away from this. Uh, again, we're going to stay in the Greek world. I'm not going to try and say what we're going to do next week, because like you saw, we can change it at any point. Uh, but I will probably stay in the Hellenistic area. Um, maybe I'll get into Alexandria, because... Uh, kind of a good transition since I mentioned it here, uh, particularly the school, what was it, um, who were some cool, that, that's it. You know what, I said I wasn't going to do it, but now I'm going to do it because I really like the story of Alexandria. It's the birthplace of the modern world, in my opinion. Um, in fact, um, excellent book, excellent book. Uh, about Alexandria, let me go over to my library here and see uh, this is where we're going to get into, but yeah, The Rise and Fall of Alexandria by Justin Pollard. Uh, so if you kind of want to read that before next week, um, order it on Amazon. It's pretty cheap. Uh, I don't know if, um, you have Amazon Prime, you'll get it pretty quick, but, uh, that's what I'm going to be talking mainly out of because it's an awesome summary, but also I'll have, a you know, some other research, some other things that came out of it, but Alexandria, very cool. Um, we won't just talk about the uh, library. We'll also get into some of the other awesome sites that were around Alexandria, particularly the Lighthouse. So, okay, so next week's Alexandria. This week, like I was saying, I was I referenced some of the Alexi ad here. Um, but again, I don't have a lot of time, so I couldn't get into too much here. But the Alexi ad is an excellent resource if you want to see what the medieval Roman military was like in the high Middle Ages there. And that's another one you can order on Amazon. Um, like I said, it's by Anna Comnemna. If, if you start typing Anna, then K-O-M. I'm sure it'll pop right up. But K-O-M-N-E-N-E -N -E is how you spell her last name. And Alexiad, A-L-E-X-I-A-D. Um, you know, it's, it's about like 400 pages of actual writing. 400 pages of actual history. But very cool stuff. She's a, like I said, a first-hand source. She witnessed it herself. Um, so very cool. If you want to uh, read more about, you know, if you want to look it up, see if you can find a site that touches exactly where some of this stuff is. It also is going to depend on the edition. I tried to look up so I could have, like, exact uh, page and chapter references. Uh, but the 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 penguin classic edition that i have whatever this edition was ain't the one that was coming up and everything i was finding for the reference sources their versions were different and so their pages and their stuff is not lining up with what i'm looking at but it's in here i remember reading it but i just couldn't 
narrowed down exactly where it was in my particular edition of the penguin volume but um anyway you can uh get that order and if you want and next week if you want to jump ahead and get a good review of uh you know alexandria and the library and maybe some of the important people and inventions that came out of it like i said you can read the rise and fall of alexandria and that is what we will be doing too uh next week we'll get into uh, the its creation how it came about um famous people famous things that come out of it um like i think i had mentioned actually this is more than once that i think alexander has been mentioned in this podcast and we're only about three episodes in originally i think i said that my favorite uh greek myth was the argonautica which was written by a guy named apollonius of rhodes who was the curator of the library at alexandria for a time and um so very very i mean you have to be a very very smart guy to be the head of that place so so very cool uh we'll get into that uh no doubt apollonius or not apollonius yes apollonius will come up um next week as well but uh we'll get into some of these other uh things that were done some of these other famous people and maybe and definitely some people you haven't heard of and some of the things they were doing will absolutely blow your mind you will not believe uh, some of the things I'm going to tell you next week in the year that it happened, um, you're really going to be shocked. And that's what I, that's kind of why I want to do that too, is because kind of like what we did with the Greek fire here, I want to show that, you know, the ancient world, the medieval world really wasn't as dumb. And the Romans and some of these cultures, they were very, very intelligent. And some of these things that we consider to be modern really aren't that modern um but yeah so next week we'll jump into some of this uh some more of this history we'll jump into some more of this uh some of these things that'll just blow your mind and keep western civ alive so thank you all for tuning in i appreciate it and i will see y'all next week uh i know i was been saying this is supposed to be 15 to 20 minutes but i just don't think that's going to be possible so it looks like we're going to be averaging maybe like a little over 30 minutes, but that's okay. So I think my new target's going to be trying to keep it under 40 because uh, there's just not enough time. You can't set the setting and tell the story without it taking a little bit longer than 15 minutes. Otherwise, you just don't get enough. So Because I got like endless notes here. This really could be like two-part things because I'm sitting here reading being like, all right, what what can I get out of here real quick? And so I got to jump and skip. And this is even me going you know double the time so so I don't know. that's what's cool that's what makes it fun but yeah so we're going to continue on with some of these roman inventions some of these ancient inventions that'll blow your mind so tune in next week to hear more and thank you all again and remember to continue looking at our podcast throughout the week to see uh what new content's out so thank you all and i'll check you all out next tuesday